And this is why it says, I urge you. What's it saying? It says, now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. To do what? To please God. We urge you more and more. And that's exactly what church is for. To urge you to live for Christ, to please Him with every fiber of your being. That Christ will become first, not last. That we won't put fashion before God. That we won't put entertainment before God. That we won't put Facebook before God. You know what I mean? That we won't put everything that this world is consuming us with before God. That we go into that prayer closet every day and we say, I'm going to cut off from the world. I'm going to give God this moment. Does he deserve it? Does he deserve it? Doesn't he deserve that little bit of time from you? Where you just say, no, no, I'm not going to answer that phone call. I'm not going to respond to that Facebook thing, message that just came through. I'm not going to respond to any of that. I'm just going to focus on Jesus and give him my heart, even if it's just 15 minutes, even if it's just five minutes. Just shut the door and cut off. Go into that closet. Amen. Who knows that that five minutes can be so neglected? Who knows that you can just say, oh, I haven't got time to pray. I've got to get to work. Jump in the car. And you think, oh, I'll pray in the car. And then you're in the car and then you know, you're swerving in and out of the traffic. Who's got, who's got the concentration to actually think about God and do all that as well? And next thing you know, you get to work. Oh, I still haven't prayed. I'll, find a, I'll, I'll pray in my break. I'll go outside and sit in my car or something in the break. And I'll pray in my break. And then the break comes and that gets blown off. You know what I mean? Give God a little bit of your day. And he'll give back in abundance to you. It's really important that you understand something about this particular day and age. Right? This time, we are living in probably the most potentially powerful time for spiritual, in the spiritual realm in the history of the planet. We, there are powers at play here in this world right now and that, that if you're not aware of, they are going to use you up big time. We are living on the verge, on the cusp of the second coming of the great Jesus Christ. You know, for 2,000 years, they've always been saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. But there was no significant things that were happening in the world to give them the, the, that, that sense that Jesus was coming. Uh, and what I mean by that is they weren't sort of, uh, in, in a sense, if you die, you're going, to be, you're going to see Jesus straight away, aren't you? You know what I mean? So you're as close as your death, really. So if I live another 50 years, I'm 50 years until Jesus Christ comes to me personally. I'm going to meet with my Savior, right? So when none of us are ever 100 years more than the time of meeting Jesus. So, but the, this, is, this is a critical thing. There's some particular prophecies that have been written in the Scriptures. And one in particular that is very, very significant to understand is a thing called the Mark of the Beast, who knows what the Mark of the Beast has heard of that? Anyone? I'm sure you all have. Now, what the Mark of the Beast system is, is that every single person on the planet, before the coming of the Lord, every single person on the planet is going to receive a mark, either on their wrist or on their forehead. And if they don't receive this mark on the wrist or the forehead, they won't be able to buy or sell. So in a sense, they're going to starve. They won't worry about fashion and clothing at that point. They'll just be worried about eating and drinking. And that's you're going to only be able to live for approximately, you know, 40 days without water. Not many days at all, but if you get water, 40 days, maybe 80 days and you'll be dead from starvation, right, at that time. So it's going to be a very strong compulsion in most of us to get the mark. So this, we are living, and what I'm, why I'm saying this is there's a system, who knows, pay pass. Has anyone used it? Has anyone, you didn't want to use it at the beginning, but now you sort of go, oh, it's easy, just do and they, they take your money from your card. Who does that? All of us have had a go at it. Yeah, if you've got a card, it's just, a, it's just this little pay thing and you just wave your card in front of it. The interesting thing about that is that that is the very technology that Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago. That's the technology. There it is, right there in our shopping centers. It's sitting there 
ready for a silicon chip implant or, or a, a silicon tattoo, an RFID mark, to just wave across the front of that thing and you can do a transaction with your wrist and they can pick it off and they can put it up to your forehead if you want to have it there. But the reason I'm telling you about this, about this Mark of the Beast system, is for 2,000 years that system was not available. The technology was not available. 2,000 years, guys. I want you to be aware of the times you're living in. We're living in times that Paul saw through a glass dimly. He saw, he looked into the future. He saw the end. John saw the end and wrote the book of Revelation. There was end time scenarios that they were, they were writing and describing. The interesting thing is what they were writing and describing, we're now in or on the cusp of. So what does that make us? How should that make us live our Christian life now? We're living in probably the most significant time in the history of the earth. Greater, greater, and I'll tell you this with emphasis, greater than the time when Moses came and delivered the people Israel from Egypt. We're about to witness something greater than the miracles performed during the Exodus. And does that not make you go, whoa? It should. It should turn you on. It should switch you on. It should make you realize, hey man, God saved me for this time. He didn't send me a hundred years ago. He didn't send me 200 years ago or a thousand years ago. He sent me now. Why? Oh, God mucked up. God mucked up. I must, he must be out of his mind sending me. But he's not, is he? He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was going to, each and every one of you, he saw you in your, before he placed you in your mother's womb. He said, I want this person, I want this person, I want Andy to be there, I want Matthew to be there, I want Elizabeth to be there, I want Stephen to be there, I want Anthony to be there. We need a six foot six guy there. So he, he saw us in, his, in our mother's womb. He saw us. And guess what he destined us to be? Guess what he destined us to be? A holy people. A holy people. So if you've got a Bible, please turn in it to 1 Thessalonians 4.1. And the scripture says, it says, Finally, brothers, finally. Brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And then he says to the Thessalonians, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. To do it more and more. To live to please God more and more. And he urges the church of Thessalonica to do it more and more and more and more. Not less and less and less and less. Do you know what I'm saying? Who knows, as a Christian, you can go through your Christian life and, and the passion to serve and please God that you had in the beginning dies off. It dies off. Who's been there? Am I the only one? Yeah. It dies off. It gets watered down. It gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And before you know it, you're not living to please God. You're living to please, guess who? Self. Are we living in a self-pleasing age? Does not this culture promote self-pleasure at the highest level? And you know who they prey on? You know who the culture preys on? Is the youth. They're preying on the youth. Seriously. They have got it wound up. Satan has got the youth culture wound up. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's, he's getting them um, into a position where they have to go along with it. They have to go along with the culture. Or else they'll feel left out. They'll feel like they're not one with their friends and all that. You know what I mean? And who knows, as, as, as the youth in the church, do you feel pressured sometimes to comply? You know, 
And this is the unusual thing, is it's, it's big, the culture is big on making you feel that uh, you've got to be different, right? You've got to have something that makes you stand out. Yet, what, they're actually, what you do to become a standout is exactly what everybody else is doing. So you're actually not a standout. You're actually just complying. You're just falling into line. But you know what Jesus Christ wants of, wants of all of us? Like, who's more important, Jesus Christ or the culture? Like, you ask, ask anyone who's been, who, who's been raised in a Christian home. Any child will say, oh, of course Jesus is more important. So what's more important, uh, the, the friends that you keep or Jesus Christ? And we'll say, oh, of course Jesus Christ. And we, we agree that Jesus Christ is the, the truth. Amen? I don't think anyone who's been brought up in a Christian home would ever deny that. But then, what do our actions show? What are we as adults? What does our actions show? Is Jesus Christ first? Or is Jesus Christ left to last place in a lot of our day? I know I, I probably will have to say, I'll confess today, there was probably a couple of days this week where Jesus Christ ran second place to what I had to do in my day. Anyone else had that experience this week? Yeah. Who finds it um, that the longer you stay away from the church, the easier it is to slip and let Jesus Christ become second, third, fourth, fifth. And next thing you know, he's running in last place. You know, this is why we've got to come in here, and this is why it says, I urge you. What's it saying? It says, now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. To do what? To please God. We urge you more and more. And that's exactly what church is for, to urge you to live for Christ, to please him with every fiber of your being, that Christ will become first, not last, that we won't put fashion before God, that we won't put entertainment before God, that we won't put Facebook before God. You know what I mean? That we won't put everything that this world is consuming us with before God. That we go into that prayer closet every day and we say, I'm going to cut off from the world. I'm going to give God this moment. Does he deserve it? Does he deserve it? Doesn't he deserve that little bit of time from you? Where you just say, no, no, I'm not going to answer that phone call. I'm not going to respond to that Facebook thing, message that just came through. I'm not going to respond to any of that. I'm just going to focus on Jesus and give him my heart, even if it's just 15 minutes, even if it's just five minutes. Just shut the door and cut off. Go into that closet. Amen? Who knows that that five minutes can be so neglected? Who knows that you can just say, oh, I haven't got time to pray, I've got to get to work. Jump in the car. And you think, oh, I'll pray in the car. And then you're in the car and then you know, you're swerving in and out of the traffic. Who's got, who's got the concentration to actually think about God and do all that as well? And next thing you know, you get to work. Oh, I still haven't prayed. I'll, find a, I'll, I'll pray in my break. I'll go outside and sit in my car or something in the break. And I'll pray in my break. And then the break comes and that gets blown off. You know what I mean? Give God a little bit of your day. And he'll give back in abundance to you. If God is put first. Amen. I know I can see everyone agrees with me. Everyone agrees with me because it's hard to deny this. And guys, I just want you to be aware of the time we are living in. You, you know, it's really important, and especially the youth. It's really important that you understand something about this particular day and age. Right? This time, we are living in probably the most potentially powerful time for spiritual, in the spiritual realm in the history of the planet. We, there are powers at play here in this world right now and th that if you're not aware of, they are going to use you up big time. We are living on the verge, on the cusp of the second coming of the great Jesus Christ. You know, for 2,000 years, they've always been saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. But there was no significant things that were happening in the world to give them 
that, that sense that Jesus was coming. Uh, and what I mean by that is they weren't sort of, uh, in, in a sense, if you die, you're going, to be, you're going to see Jesus straight away, aren't you? You know what I mean? So you're as close as your death, really. So if I live another 50 years, I'm 50 years until Jesus Christ comes to me personally. I'm going to meet with my Saviour, right? So when none of us are ever 100 years more than the time of meeting Jesus. So, but the, this, is, this is a critical thing. There's some particular prophecies that have been written in the Scriptures. And one in particular that is very, very significant to understand is a thing called the Mark of the Beast, who knows what the Mark of the Beast has heard of that? Anyone? I'm sure you all have. Now, what the Mark of the Beast system is, is that every single person on the planet, before the coming of the Lord, every single person on the planet is going to receive a mark, either on their wrist or on their forehead. And if they don't receive this mark on the wrist or the forehead, they won't be able to buy or sell. So in a sense, they're going to starve. They won't worry about fashion and clothing at that point. They'll just be worried about eating and drinking. And that's you're going to only be able to live for approximately, you know, 40 days without water. Not many days at all, but if you get water, 40 days, maybe 80 days and you'll be dead from starvation, right, at that time. So it's going to be a very strong compulsion in most of us to get the mark. So this, we are living, and what I'm, why I'm saying this is there's a system, who knows, pay pass. Has anyone used it? Has anyone, you didn't want to use it at the beginning, but now you sort of go, oh, it's easier, just do and they, they take your money from your card. Who does that? All of us have had a go at it? Yeah, if you've got a card, it's just, it's just this little pay thing and you just wave your card in front of it. The interesting thing about that is that that is the very technology that Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago. That's the technology. There it is, right there in our shopping centres. It's sitting there ready for a silicon chip implant or, or a, a silicon tattoo, an RFID mark, to just wave across the front of that thing and you can do a transaction with your wrist and they can pick it off and they can put it up to your forehead if you want to have it there. Now, what, why am I telling you that? Not, the, not to freak you out, but, well, in a way to freak you out, fear of God is good, right? Not a fear of man. I want to tell you this, do not fear man. If you fear God, you will not fear man. If you're fearing man or you're feeling, fearing world events then you don't have a proper appreciation for God. right? We should fear God and God alone. Never fear events. If world events make you shake with fear, that's a sign to you, you've got to get into the prayer closet. You've got to get right with God because you don't have proper reverence for Him. Because you should be unshakable, unmovable in the face of these events. But the reason I'm telling you about this about this mark of the beast system, is for 2,000 years that system was not available. The technology was not available. 2,000 years, guys. So when Hitler rose to prominence and everyone's saying, the Antichrist, and wouldn't you think it? He's slaying Jews. He's a hater of the Jewish people. He's going to, he wants to dictate the whole world. He wants to take over the whole world. So he's out there trying to conquer every country at once. And he's succeeding. You would think there's the Antichrist, wouldn't you? If you're a pre-tribulationist, you'd be thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> this is the tribulation. He's at power and I'm still here. What's going on? But was he the Antichrist? He was, a, he was a antichrist. Actually, Paul says many antichrists have come. He was a, a type of the antichrist that is to come. The, the antichrist that is to come will make Hitler look like a choir boy. Now, do you know when you, when you preach this stuff in this sort of a community where we're all peaceful and everything's good, people find it, you know, it's confronting, isn't it? But how much more confronting is it going to be when you're living in it? You know, pre-World War II, people, or World War I, pre-World War I, if people started to get in the pulpit and say, there is a world war coming, it's going to be a terrible time, and people say, please don't preach that in the pulpit, it's horrible, it makes us all feel uncomfortable. Next thing you know, you're living in it. Preach it from the pulpit, come on. Tell us how to get through this thing. Tell us how to keep our faith during this time. So you should want to know about what God has prepared for his people during this time. 
How is God going to help us go through this time? But the reason I'm saying it, the reason I'm telling you about this Mark of the Beast system is I want you to be aware of the times you're living in. We're living in times that Paul saw through a glass dimly. He saw, he looked into the future, he saw the end. John saw the end and wrote the book of Revelation. There was end time scenarios that they were, they were writing and describing. The interesting thing is what they were writing and describing we're now in or on the cusp of. So what does that make us, how should that make us live our Christian life now? We're living in probably the most significant time in the history of the earth. Greater, greater, and I'll tell you this with emphasis, greater than the time when Moses came and delivered the people Israel from Egypt. We're about to witness something greater than the miracles performed during the Exodus. And does that not make you go, whoa? It should. It should turn you on. It should switch you on. It should make you realize, hey man, God saved me for this time. He didn't send me 100 years ago. He didn't send me 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago. He sent me now. Why? Oh, God mucked up. God mucked up. I must, he must be out of his mind sending me. But he's not, is he? He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was going to, each and every one of you, he saw you in your, before he placed you in your mother's womb. He said, I want this person. I want this person. I want Andy to be there. I want Matthew to be there. I want Elizabeth to be there. I want Stephen to be there. I want Anthony to be there. We need a six foot six guy there. <laughs> you know what I mean? We need Anthony here, I tell you. <laughs> um, so he, he saw us in, his, in our mother's womb. He saw us. And guess what he destined us to be? Guess what he destined us to be? A holy people. A holy people. And let's just read it, and this is not in my notes, so let's go to Ephesians. Let's turn in Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 1. And it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. Or is there other, any version say sanctified, consecrated, whatever? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy holy and blameless in his sight. You were chosen to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Okay, so we live a bit of life in this world, and guess what? We muck up. We're unholy, and we deserve blame. Don't we? So what do we do? We turn to Jesus Christ. And we ask him to wash us and cleanse us of all of our sins so that we can stand before him holy and blameless. But then we live another day in the world, and guess what? Potential is to get filthy again. So we have to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. But does he want you to do the same thing every single day and over and over and over again, over and over and over again? You don't want to be like a, someone who's a heroin addict and he just takes his heroin and then he comes to the Lord, sorry, for, sorry Lord, I took my heroin again today, and then tomorrow he takes it again, sorry, Lord, I took my heroin again today. Now, guess what happens if you continue to live like that? You'll be dead before you know it. The heroin will kill you. God wants a holy people, and what that means is a people that resist the sin nature. Sure, you can muck up, but you don't make it a habit. You live for him. And if you set your sights on him every day, he will make you a holy person. He'll make you holy before him. And this is, this is the sad thing about this day and age. And this, uh, in the church up until about 100 years ago, probably 80 years ago, the church was known as a holy place. It's, the people were generally holy. They were generally lived upright and 
you know, impeccable lives in Christ. And if, you know, even a person from 100 years ago, if they walked in this church, would be thinking, man, this guy's so holy. And he would be saying, well, you should have seen the guys in my church. You know, I'm nothing compared to these guys. And we'd be thinking, wow. You know what I mean? I'm not saying any of you aren't that holy because I know there's a lot of really holy people in this church. But holiness was a standard. Everyone lived for it. But what's happened in the 20th century is there's been a watering down of the doctrine of holiness to the point where they don't even mention it, that it's not even a, it's got nothing to do with salvation and all this sort of thing, and then that you're saved by grace and grace is a cover-up. And if you, if you sin, don't worry, you're under grace. And they've got it all mucked up. And this, this is what this whole series is about. And this is what I've been talking to you guys about. And who knows after seven parts, are you starting to see what I'm talking about? It's pretty clear. Let's, let's go to Romans 8, 3b to 4. See, if you take the scriptures and you take to heart what is said, God's going to transform you. The scriptures, who knows, the scriptures have the power to transform. I just read a quote the other day. Scriptures aren't for our education, they're for our transformation. I'm not, I'm not up here as one educated in scripture. I'm up here as one trying to be transformed and trying to see the scriptures transform those that I speak to. It's not about making you smart in scripture. It's about making you a new creature. So Romans 8, 3b, and it says, And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the, listen to this, guys, I want you to really hear this, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So he condemned sin in sinful man in order, so that he went on to the cross, he got on that cross, he condemned sin so that, in order that, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So that's what the cross was for, so that we could fulfill the law. That the righteous requirements of the law should be fully met in us. And this is the kind of people we're meant to be. People that do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Is that clear? That's just one scripture of hundreds and hundreds like it in the Bible, in the New Testament, that I've discovered so the righteous requirements of the law are to be fully met in us. How? By the power of the Spirit. See, if you live by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Amen? Will you fulfill the lusts of the flesh if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, sold out to the Spirit of God, living a life of repentance before God, will you then fulfill the lusts of the flesh? No. Perhaps you do. Perhaps you do go and fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that tell you? That you're not walking in the Spirit. That's all it tells you. So what do you repent for? You repent to get back under grace. Because the grace given you is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grace. So if, you're, if you have the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that is you will live a sinless life. But we don't all the time. But that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not with you or in the sense that you have not the grace of God upon you. So you need to repent and step back under grace again. See, what they tell you is that you're always under grace. No, you're not always under grace. I've, I've, I've heard of ministers who, uh, a certain man who lived a terrible, terrible, wretched life through his, his whole uh, adult life, yet... When he was, had his, bur uh, his burial at his funeral, the priest or the pastor of, that, of the church where they held that funeral said, I remember when young, you know, Bob, I use Bob, close to my name, when Bob came into the church and gave his life to Jesus Christ when he was 21 years old. And he's saved. He's in the kingdom of heaven. And people are looking at each other like, whoa, but didn't Bob never went to church after that? And didn't Bob never... Never lived for Christ. And Bob was the most wretched man in the town. Yet this once saved, always saved doctrine was so fixed in that minister's mind that he thought just because that man had given 
his life and his heart to Jesus when he was 21, that after all those wretched years, he's still saved because you can't lose your salvation no matter how hard you try. Anyone ever heard that teaching? Who's heard that teaching? I, I, from the moment I went to church, I started to hear ministers get up and say, you will never, ever lose your salvation. You can't lose it. What about if you end up going through situations and you end up hating Jesus with a passion, yet once you loved him with a passion? Who knows, when you get married to someone, and I'm saying uh, not about um, us in here, but when you say you get married and you, you're deeply in love with that person, just as like Jesus, when you marry Jesus Christ, right? You're deeply in love with that person, that person's deeply in love with you. You get married, then you go through your life and eventually you don't like each other anymore. Who knows that? Happens. Yeah, it happens, doesn't it? Right? So what happens? You get a divorce. You, you separate. You can't say you're still with that person anymore. If we are married to Jesus Christ, and then we go through our life and we get to the point where we don't want to hear about Jesus Christ anymore, the last thing I want to hear about is the cross. Please don't talk to, to me about it. Yet that person was in love, deeply in love, when he first believed in Jesus Christ. But yet through circumstances, through situations, through knowledge and through everything else that we gather along the way, we turn our backs on Jesus Christ. Has that happened? Do people turn away from Christ? And all the, as it says in, I think it's Jeremiah, all, everything that was good, everything, all those good things will be no longer remembered. Only, when he stands on judgment, he won't be able to call back on a past life where he did accept him. When he comes to judgment, it's what he did at the end of the race. Did he complete the race? Or did he pull out at halfway? Or did he pull off the race at three quarters of the way? You've got to finish the race, guys. Why else do we have church? Why else is church here? It's not so I get a chance to blow my trumpet every week. Church is here to make sure you finish the race. To make sure that you're burning with a passion for Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. It's so that I can encourage you and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's so that, you know, if, if put it this way, my job is simply to get you guys into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes a member of this church, my job is then take care of the flock. See that they get into the kingdom of heaven. See that they do not reject Jesus Christ. Keep them in love. And what do I have to do? I have to be ultra in love with Jesus Christ. I've got to be passionate. And what else have I got to do? I've got to read the scriptures and teach the truth of scripture according to what the Holy Spirit's revealing to me about it, even if it runs dead against the grain of everything getting taught today. Even if people come in here and go, that sounds legalism to me. Fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, that's legalism, isn't it? Well, it's in the book of Romans. If it's legalism, Christianity must have an element of legalism. And let's have a look. Let's see what else it says. So we've got the fulfill righteous requirements of the law. Go to Romans 3.31. And this is when he's talking about grace. And it says, do we then, everyone there, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. See? The law's not nullified, guys. You, you know, if you, if you think of the law as just laws in general, you can't walk out there and say, I'm not under the law, so I'm going to sit on 100 kilometres an hour down this street here. I'm not under the law. The cop pulls you over, you did 100 kilometres. Well, I'm not under the law. I'm a Christian. How would that wash? What's the law say? Do not murder. Oh, I'm not under the law, so I can go out and murder. See what it says. Oh, now you're preaching legalism. Really? Isn't it? You're not supposed to murder? What about adultery? I'm not under the law, so I can commit adultery. Does that make sense? Are Christians, or I'll say this in a, in a more understanding way so that you understand what Christianity does for you. As an unbeliever, you cannot fulfill the law. You are under the law and condemned by the law. But as Christians, we're not under the law. We're under grace, which means you get received the Holy Spirit who enables you 
to do what? And listen to the scripture. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold. We uphold the law. Who sees that in scripture? Am I the only one? Does it say it in scripture? Is that legalism? No, it's scripture. It can't be legalism to uphold the law. Isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? Aren't Christians supposed to be impeccably holy and righteous? Aren't Christians supposed to be model citizens? Aren't Christians to do no wrong? If they see a $5 note on a table in someone's kitchen, they don't take it and put it in their pocket, do they? That's what the people in the world does. Oh, it's just laying there, it's mine. Listen, you're in someone else's house, doesn't matter. You shouldn't have left it out. My daughter, who's not here, and I can say this story now, um, she received her pay from her work. She works at a coffee shop across the road there. And she received her pay, and there was $200 more than it should have been in there. 400 and something she got. She should have got 200 So she went to a boss and said, you overpaid me by around $200. And he goes, oh, really? I'll, I'll, look, I'll, I'll check it out. Thank you for coming up. And I said, you know, good on you, Tessa, because there's blessings from God for doing that, but also that boss is, who's he going to trust with money? <laughs> who's he going to trust now? If he had to put someone in charge when he walks out with the, in charge of the till, he's not going to put these other people that if he had overpaid them, they don't mention it, because they, they'll be thinking in their mind, oh, they, he's stuffed up. <laughs> it's mine. Thank you. It's so many blessings from doing the right thing. And she did it, but she, she, at the time, she didn't think about even before God, I should do this, say anything. Or it probably was God that spurred her on, to rephrase it. God probably spurred her on. She probably said, what shall I do? And God made it clear, give it back. It's not yours. But she didn't have any idea that what the blessings that she's going to get in the, in the eyes of that boss. So that's, that's upholding the law, Amen. That's upholding the law. Are Christians meant to uphold the law? We're not under the law. Because if we're under the law, we'll probably be breaking it. Because the law will just increase the trespass, won't it? That's what it says in Scripture in the book of Romans. It increases the trespass. But when, you, when you're in the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God is upon you, you can fulfill the law, and guess what? Without even trying. You, just, you don't have to... Dodge back and forth in your mind. Should I steal that? Should I not? Should I? Should I not? Should I not? Should I? Should I? You don't do that. You just don't. I remember Vina and I worked in a, a, a registration, uh, you know, the car rego place just up here? And uh, um, we used to clean at night, so we'd go in after lockup. And uh, we had a security code, go in there, clean the place. You know, I'm pretty sure they planted a big bag of cash right on the table there and probably set a little camera up in a teddy bear or something up in the corner and I, I went up and I saw the cash and I just went <laughs> I wouldn't have touched it even if there wasn't a camera on me or even if I didn't think they'd planted it or whatever but that, that was my, my thought anyway that they probably did but how many people would have been tempted to slip it in there I could do with that extra 50 there was a few hundred bucks in there but it didn't even occur to me to steal it didn't even occur. Why? Because Christ is in me. The Holy Spirit is guiding my thoughts. The desire to steal is not in me. And, and you know, when I was young, before I became a Christian, guess what? I used to steal. My son's looking at me shocked right now. <laughs> no, he's not. He knows I was a naughty boy when I was, before I was Christian. So when you grow up in a Christian household, you just naturally do all the right things, don't you? Or you should, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but when you, when you don't grow up in a Christian household, I had two parents that were atheists, and man, you know, 20 bucks laying there. I'd go searching for 20 bucks laying around. So it's so important that we understand that. We're, we, we are to uphold the law, Amen. Now, am I saying this, and I want to say this because people, um, and I'll let you know, those of you that don't know me that well, um, occasionally I get accused of being legalist. Who's heard the term legalist in churches? Usually a legalist is someone who starts telling people that they should live holy lives. 
and they should resist the sin nature. So usually someone who will say that salvation is dependent upon being perfect. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm not a perfectionist. Because if I was a perfectionist, I wouldn't be saying that you come back to Jesus and, and repent and live a life of perpetual, unending repentance. That's what perfectionism is not. Uh, perfectionism is where you are perfect. And if you're not perfect, you won't get saved. Right? That's sort of like hyper-grace, and it's hyper-legalism. But I'm not preaching that at all. I'm encouraging everyone to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, right? to follow the leadings and promptings of the Spirit every day. And if you do muck up, I'm also teaching, come back to Jesus, repent, and get right with him and get in a right standing with your holy God. Repent and get in right standing. Charles Finney called it perpetual unending consecration or perpetual, I call it perpetual unending repentance, a life of daily repentance. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean every day you say, sorry, 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 sorry. That's not what repentance is. What is repentance? It's a turning from. It's the sins that used to hold you captive and you turn and say, no, I'm not going to do those anymore. I'm doing the right thing now. And if you fall back into them, you say it again. I'm not going to do it. And you keep on doing that. There was a really brilliant um, advertisement on TV uh, very, uh, probably a year ago I saw it. And it was about cigarette smoking. I'm sure some of you may have saw it. Saw it. And this person quit. And then he said and six months later he starts again. And then he quit again. Then he started again. And then he quit again. Who, who remembers that ad? Yeah? And what was the ultimate outcome of that? He quit for good, right? I can't remember the catchphrase on it, but it was really good. I should, should, should have written it down. But it was basically that you, just got, if you get better at quitting if you keep on like, quitting from something bad. You get better at it by practicing it and doing it. You know? If you continue to resist the sin nature, even if it pulls you back a little bit and you quickly resist it again, eventually you will resist it. And what does it say about the devil? He will flee. If you resist the devil, he will flee. So is it important? Is it important to live a life of resisting the sin nature? And I'll ask you this question. What sort of a Christianity is it if we don't live like that? <laughs> what is Christianity anyway if, if it's not to become you know, impeccably holy before a holy God? What is it? Aren't we supposed to shine before men? Aren't we supposed to, people are supposed to look at us and look at the normal person in the world and see a significant difference, aren't they? If they don't see that, what is Christianity? If, if, you, know, if you go out with your friends and you do exactly what they do, and if you live your life exactly as they live it, what has Christianity really done for you? Has it set you apart? Has it made you holy? Is Christianity, does it, has it always for 2,000 years boasted to make men holy? Is, aren't we supposed to become new creatures? Aren't we supposed to be born again? What does that mean? Shedding the old, putting on the new. Aren't we supposed to die? Aren't we supposed to be crucified with Christ? Aren't we supposed to crucify the flesh nature? Aren't these the things that Christianity boasts? Well, I think it's time that we do it. <laughs> I think it's time as a church that we become impeccably holy before a holy God. Prepare yourself for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you want to turn that heater off? <laughs> there was conflict of interest over there. <laughs> yeah, Matthew's sweating. Yeah. Can you see what I mean? Who gets it? Anyone getting it? I hope you do. I'm, I'm trying my hardest to make it as clear as crystal. Christianity has the power to change a man. Amen. All right, let's see if I can get more than three scriptures done. I'm only, these are just my recap scriptures. So I was just recapping from the last time I spoke. Now let's have a look at this. This, this to me 
this scripture, if you can turn there, Romans 6.22. This to me encapsulates um, salvation. Okay, let's have a look at it. 6.22 and it says, But now that you have been set free from sin. Has everyone got that? But now that you have been set free from sin. Okay, so the first step is to be set free from sin. In these mega churches, and I bring these up because you need to see contrast. You need to see black and white. For us to understand and get a clear understanding of Scripture, we've got to see contrast into what is being taught and uh, where we should be according to Scripture. When, do, do these big churches today call people to major repentance? Do they call them, uh, like I've been in churches where they do, believe me, there, there's churches that do, but there's a lot of churches that don't. And there's now this prevailing teaching where they actually try to tell you, don't try to get them to repent, get them saved. Get them saved and then deal with repentance after. Interesting thing, you can't get saved unless you repent. It doesn't make sense, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's like the horse trying to push the cart rather than pull it. You won't get very far. They're not designed to push, they're designed to pull. Repentance pulls us into heaven. Right? It's like the strings attached to Jesus Christ and we're led captives in his train and the strings are repentance and we hold on with repentance. And, but now that you've been set free from sin, so you have to be set free from sin. So if you're not set free from sin, make sure you're set free from sin. Make sure you deal with it and deal with it again. And like that smoking ad, deal with it again, deal with it again, deal with it again until it's cut off. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. You have to become slaves to God. You have to give your life to Christ. So that's the steps. Free from sin, slaves to God. The benefit you reap, what does it say? Leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. That's the order of salvation. That's the order of salvation. You must be set free from sin. You must become a slave to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. You become holy. And the result of that is eternal life. Four-stage process. Now I want to ask you, is that my own philosophy? I have to ask you that. I have to keep asking you that because if you... If you walk out and say, oh, Rob, he's got this crazy philosophy about Christianity, what does it say? What does the Scripture say? I've done eight sermons. I've done 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter that's just gone online, and 1 Peter says the same thing. I went through 2 Peter, went through Jude and John, 1 John. 1 John's probably the hardest book of all in relation to this doctrine. Tough, tough on it. Really hardcore on it. Then you get in the Romans, and how much of Romans speaks on the same subject in every or nearly every chapter? And then I've gone through the rest of the books of the New Testament, and all I'm getting is the same prevailing teaching over and over and over again. So when I get that, and I'm thinking, hang on, but this runs in against so much teaching today. And God just says to me, Preach it. Preach it. Preach what it says, because it says it over and over again. Make sure you preach what it says, even if people call you a legalist. And if that's what I get known as, whatever. They can call me whatever they want. But the fact of the matter is, I can't change Scripture to suit a philosophy I want to keep. Does that make sense? So it says that you must... Repent of your sin, you must become a slave to God. Now what does that mean? Not a slave to man. Let's get that in context. Because as soon as people think of slaves, they think, slave? You want me to become a slave? I'll tell you what, if you were a slave and God was your master, that would be the best, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be best? You know, in, in Israel, if slaves, the, the Jewish people treated their slaves so well that when they had their seven years up, they were allowed to go free. A lot of them said, no, I don't want to go free. And to stay with their master, they used to have to put their, um, I think, was it nailing? I 
vaguely remember nailing the earlobe to the door or something and something like pretty vicious. Um, you know, so well, you want to stay with me? You've got to go through this now. <laughs> and it's sort of in a sense, it's like sacrifice. Sacrificing yourself to your, to your owner. So to be a slave of God, is that the most beautiful thing you could hope for? Isn't that what we would desire to do? To be a slave to God? If you're a true Christian, if, you, if, it, if, it, if I'm saying these things and you're going, oh man, that really, really, really runs against my grain. I don't like hearing this. Then you haven't got an issue with me. You've got an issue with Scripture because that's what Scripture is saying. I'm just trying to bring it to you as nicely as I possibly can. But God's also speaking it through me in this certain line of, of reason to help you to understand it. And I'm also coming with a, an, a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. You know, are, are, we, are we seeing some crazy things happening around the world at the moment? Orlando? You know, that's terrible. You know, and Christians get on there and say, good on them, you know, killing the homosexuals. I'm like, What? Are you for real? Who of us is without sin? Let him be the first to cast a stone. Who of us is without sin? You know, those people could have had a chance to receive Jesus one day. And that kid went in there and destroyed him. It's devastating. It's devastating. It's a sign of the times, these shootings. It all seems to be happening in America. But man, go over to the Middle East. What are the, what's happening over there with ISIS? A militant Islamic movement that takes the Quran literally. Not culturally, literally. If you take the Quran literally, that's what you end up doing. Who's read a bit of the Quran? Who's read quotes from the Quran? Like if you read the Quran, man, and you take it literally, you will have to do that. You have to do that. Or else you disobey Allah. And you're in big trouble if you disobey Allah. So that's why they go and do what they do so passionately. And who, who's their main focus? Christians and Jews. Hasn't that been the focus throughout the centuries? Hasn't that always been the focus throughout the centuries? Haven't the Christians and the Jews always been the focus? How big's Israel? How's big, how big is the land of Israel? Andy, how big is it on the map? It's small, isn't it? Is it a speck when you compare it to the other countries? It's just a little, a little blop, a little bleep on the map. You know, tiny little thing. Now, for a tiny little place, doesn't it gather the interest of the world on a daily basis? Isn't it amazing? It's just the whole world's attention is right down to this pinpoint and right down to Jerusalem. The city of God. The city that Jesus Christ is king of. The true king. Why? Ask yourself that. Why? Why does the whole world focus in on Jerusalem? Because Satan knows that's where the throne of God is. That's where the city of God is going to descend from heaven and land that's where Jesus is going to, when he returns, that's where he's going to reign from. Amen. This is powerful. So what we've got, we're looking at the world news and we see these things happening. And we look at the scriptures, we see it happening. We're living in biblical times. We're living in biblical times in this world. Do you know, in the Old Testament, there was quite a few scriptures that talked about a deliverer. Moses, they talked about Israel and the Exodus, and they talked about that, you know, it was spoken, um, Joseph spoke about it, and Israel spoke about it, the father of Joseph, and spoke about this time, and it was future, it was 400 years in the future. Um, there was a lot of attention given to it, and up until that time, when Moses came to, uh, up with Aaron, and he was like, it was the equivalent of like a typology of the two witnesses that are going to rise in the last days, Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron went in and delivered the people through all those series of events. That's a pretty powerful event. You know, there was the parting of the Red Sea. And then uh, when Joshua, who's the typology of Jesus Christ, is because Joshua is Jesus, 
uh, he took them across the Jordan, didn't he? He parted the Jordan and he went through and, and so on. And also the, the people of, of God, the Israelites, is a typology of the church. And did the Israelites c- complain and fail God on so many occasions? Right? Is the church complaining and failing God on so many occasions? Right? So you've got all these typologies through all that. But you know, as, as significant as that is in the Scriptures and as significant as that time is back then, there has more been spoken of that in, about the time that we're heading into than anything else in Scripture. The times we're heading into has been highly prophesied, highly prophesied. I don't even know how many Scriptures would pertain to it. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands, because there's Scriptures in the Old Testament that pertain to it. So we're heading into a prophesied time, the most significant time in history, in history. So that should make us go, wow, we've got to really get serious. And and I've said this a number of times. Why? Because you're the people of God. You're the people, you're the Christians that can reach God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. A Buddhist can't get to God the Father. A Hindu cannot get to God the Father. A Muslim can't get to God the Father because there is only one way to the Father. Who's that through? Jesus. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. So you are the people of God. You have access to the throne of grace. So go to the throne of grace. Amen? Go there. Don't waste these golden years. Don't waste the golden years of your life. If you're young, don't waste them. Give your heart to Christ now. It doesn't mean you, it, you'll have a boring life. Who, who tends to think that? You know, the culture of this world, oh, you're a Christian. It must be boring to be a Christian because you're not allowed to do anything wrong. But you know what? Who knows that when you do wrong, the guilt that you suffer afterwards, it's never nice, is it? Who knows, you go out on the town and you do a whole bunch of wrong things. You drink too much, you say the wrong things, you carry on the wrong way. The next day you wake up, especially if you're a Christian, and you think, man, why did I do that? Who thinks that? Who's felt that? I used to wake up with such a bad hangover. That was enough for me. It was like, don't do it again. <laughs> you know, it poisons you, it kills you. Sin will kill you, it poisons you, destroys you, wrecks your life. Makes, makes life misery. Amen? So make sure you live for Christ. Make sure you give him everything. Make sure you give everything over to him. And what he does then is he, he will allow you to have the most wonderful life you can imagine. Do you know, um, and I'm sure Andy and Sharon, you can vouch that being a Christian, having a Christian life is the best possible life you can live. You know, Vina and I know that our life has just been just blessed and blessed and more blessed and more blessed and more blessed and more blessed. And we have more fun in our home than most people. You know, we have an absolute ball of a time. You know, it's, it is, isn't it exciting? Life is exciting. The littlest things become exciting. Just Vina and I and the kids are all gone out and we go off to the supermarket. We're buzzing like this. It's just awesome. That's excitement. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, yeah, right, okay. But, you know, excitement is not going to the show and having all these rides. You know, you take kids to the show and they get bored within half an hour. All the rides. What about that ride? No, nah, Dad, I'm over it. What about a big bag of lollies? No, nah, I feel sick. I've eaten too many. Yeah, so that doesn't give you pleasure. You know, but going to the supermarket. Now, that is awesome. Now, and I'll tell you why. It's the way you think about it. It's the way you think. It's the way you're wired. You know, you can see two ways in every situation. You can either see this is just a really boring time, or you can say this is an opportunity for fun, for happiness, for joy. You know, um, a a guy, his name's Ben Price, and you can search him on the internet because he's a... um, uh, impersonator. He does like Arnold Schwarzenegger very well. I won't do it for you. Um, 
<laughs> I'm tempted, but I won't. Uh, but he does a whole range of voices. But anyway, he, he watches our videos and he lives in Melbourne. And he, he emails me, loved your last sermon, that sort of thing. And, and I was talking to him on the phone yesterday. And uh, he just got back from America. He went and visited Joe Schimmel. So he landed in California, um, visited Ray Comfort, if anyone knows Ray Comfort. Then he went and saw Joe Schimmel. And then I can't remember the other guy he went and spent time with. But he had sushi with Joe Schimmel. You would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? <laughs> there was a lot of sushi for Joe. And uh, he said to me, he was standing in line in America and there's this massive long line and he's waiting to either return a car or, give his, or get a car, one of those sort of things. And he said they were, the line was moving, you know, one person every 10 minutes and he's right back there. And he said, I started to feel that like, oh man, what is, you know, you're just getting really like, God, why am I in this situation? And he goes, no, 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 I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to talk to someone about Jesus. I'm just going to get into a conversation and slowly, slowly mix it in and, and uh, reach him, try to reach him for Jesus. Anyway, he ended up in this conversation and it was in, he said it was an incredible conversation and the line vanished and they're talking and the person's saying, okay, next, 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 you know. He didn't even realise he had got to the front of the line because, and he said it was the most incredible time that he had standing in that line. So you either, it can be, you know, like, oh, I've got to go to the supermarket, got to buy the food for the kids and, you know, go home and cook. Or you can say, I can't wait to get there and, you know, see what I'm going to get the kids. And Vina and I, you know, we go and get a coffee and then we talk about different foods and, oh, that will be wild this week. Why don't we, why don't we try that? And, oh, look at this little recipe on this little Indian package. And, you know, they've got all the different cultures now. You try all the different flavours and... You know, so it's exciting. You can make it life exciting. And that's because when the Spirit of God is in you, He can do that in you. That every moment of every day doesn't matter how what and what you're going through, you can have an incredible life. And it doesn't require technology, it doesn't require any of those things. You know, and, and Ben mentioned to me on the phone. He read of a story of a man who was locked up in a dungeon at, for being a Christian and he spent two years in pitch black, pitch black in a dungeon down the bottom. So you could imagine what two years. Who would like to be locked up for two years in a dungeon? Well, after what this guy described he went through, it's very, very tempting. I'm saying that humorously. But, no, I, you know, you, you would think about it because... He said, he said, what was lying? And he says, the most wonderful time with my Savior. He was just immersed in Christ. He says he just constant fellowship. Two years nonstop in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Down in that dark, dark dungeon. Not a shred of light except the light of Christ. To him, he was, he was in heaven for two years. And you could imagine when they're saying, it, your time's up, you want to you come out. They, um, actually, tell you what, leave me here for another few days, just a few more days, because I'm, I'm right in the middle of this really gripping conversation with Jesus Christ right now, so I can't, I can't cut it off. You could imagine. And, and that's taking what was potentially the worst situation possible and turning it in to most wonderful. And when you read the description of it, you nearly want to go and do the same thing. And you think, you know what, if I'm ever locked up in a dungeon for two years, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be right there with Jesus. I'm going to be living for Jesus with all my heart. You know? I think I'll stop on that. I just felt I've poured out. All right. So I hope that's been a blessing to you. And uh, let's pray just to finish. Lord, we just... Thank you. I, I just hope that um, something I said today was a blessing to these wonderful people, Lord. And thank you for the honour of being able to preach to these people, Lord Jesus. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you bless every single one of them, that you help them in their life, help them with the things that they're going through. Help them to uh, uh, walk in you this week, live for you with all their heart. Help them to take home with them things that have been said and uh, may it just do something in them and stir them to new heights of faith and uh, 
new levels of uh, communion with you, that the Holy Spirit would be with them in a more powerful and wonderful way this week. And I just pray for a real moving of the Spirit in their life and that that you would bless them immensely. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. And Lord, just bless this fellowship time now and may you do a wonderful thing uh, among us as we uh, have fellowship together and just uh, let there be a unity of the Spirit here and uh, a bond of peace. And um, just move among us, Lord, right now, I pray by by the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I pray all these wonderful things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Amen.